Season 2, Episode 10 of the Birding Life Podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. This is the last episode of Season 2 and I'm pleased to have a chat with Dr. Rob Little. Dr. Rob is a well-known expert in South African birding. He has authored five books, including Birding in South Africa's National Parks and his latest book, Game Birds of Africa. We will talk all about his birding and conservation journey, his love of game birds, and find out all about his latest book. This is a fascinating chat that you won't want to miss. Be sure to check out today's sponsor, Sanfontaine Lodge and Nature Reserve. Sanfontaine is a uniquely private hideaway in an isolated corner of southern Namibia, set within 200,000 acres of private nature reserve, home to arid plains, dry riverbeds, and the mighty Orange River. Sanfontaine has just five eco-conscious bungalows. It's a soul-stirring place where guests have all they need to relax and reconnect with nature. Check them out either on our accommodation directory on our website or visit www.sanfontaine.com. All the links are in the show notes. If you would like to get a copy of Dr. Rob Little's Game Birds of Africa book or any other birding-related titles, be sure to visit the Birding Life's online store. We aim to offer the best titles at the best prices along with fantastic service. There is a link in the notes to the show. So, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lesser Bird Logging app. Spot, plot, play a part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other, amazing locations, the best resources, and obviously where to find amazing birds. Check out our website at www.thebirdinglife.com, our YouTube channel, our various social media platforms, as well as the other podcasts we host. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing and leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to help others find the show. So let us get into this week's episode of the Birding Life Podcast. So Rob, I want to welcome you to the Birding Life Podcast. It's good to have a chat to you. Thank you, Adam. Pleasure. So I did a whole lot of Google searching on you and I was trying to figure out a little bit more about you. And I found out this, you were born in Durban in KwaZulu-Natal, good place to be born, and you went to school at the famous King Edward High School, but what else can you tell us about yourself that I can't find on Google? Well, that's a difficult question because with Google these days, of course, people could find everything about you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Well, I, I started off after school actually as a forester. My mother decided for me because I was a little undecided as to what I wanted to do. But she knew the type of naturalist person I was, and she put me on a train. And that train stopped at Kwambenambi in Zululand, which in those days, which was like in 1973, it was extremely remote. And a forester picked me up there in a Land Rover and took me to a little house and said, that's your house, you're now becoming a professional forester. So that's where it all started, very much uh, an outdoor life. And... From there, I went to Sarsfeld Forestry College in George, in the Southern Cape, and eventually ended up in the Drakensberg at Cathedral Peak uh, Catchment Reserve. And all along, 
However, I was interested in birds. So eventually I got to the Fitzpatrick Institute and we can get into that a little further on in this discussion. And so it's it's been birds from the love of right through to the study of and generally throughout the fascination by. So yes, birds have been in my life the whole time. So what did that role as a forester look like? What did what did that involve you doing? Well, it started off, in fact, at Kwambanambi by uh, harvesting eucalyptus trees for mine shafts and telephone poles and loading them onto the train carriages at the station in Kwambanambi. And then after that, that was the first year, which is a practical year in the forestry training schedule. But after I'd finished Sarsfeld, I went up to the Eastern Cape to Fort Cox, which was a historically black training center for foresters and, and conservation people. And I lectured there for a couple of years. And that was where I got to a position in my career where I was regarded as so suitable for entering management in forestry. But I didn't practice forestry as an as a tree culturalist anymore in my career. I then moved into the conservation sector of forestry and, and was placed in the Drakensberg to assist with the management of the grasslands of those catchment areas. I think one thing I've always found interesting is people always speak about this interconnectedness. Our nature's all connected. You know, when you when you start going out, uh, um, the trees are connected to the birds and all that kind of thing. You know, how do you feel that background in forestry? I know it was a lot of the studying of that. How do you think that that has contributed to your understanding of birds? Well, it's more than just the understanding of birds. I would think it's more the understanding of conservation. And really what it's all about is that habitat is the crux of everything on, on this planet. Ecosystems are where animals, including us, live. And ecology is the study of the behavior of animals in their natural environment. So particularly in the Drakensberg, those grasslands are absolutely amazing. And... Um, you you only when you realize that you appreciate the birds in a grassland it doesn't take you long of understanding the birds are only there because of the grasslands so that's what it's at it's all a sense of place and conservation of landscapes that's just the the crux of conservation yeah i actually remember one of my first interviews i did with trevor hardica and i asked him the question what is what is your best advice for, for a person who's a birder? And he said, right back, I still sticks in my mind that one of the best things if you want to grow as a birder is to understand habitats better. He said, if you understand habitat better, you will understand birds better. So I've always, it's always stuck in my mind. And I think, yeah, I sometimes it's, I've always challenged myself to understand habitats a little bit better. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, in that context, what Trevor's probably mentioning as well is that if you're trying to look for a particular bird, you have to find its habitat first. And uh, on the other extent, if you want to differentiate about which bird you're looking at, you must match it with the habitat that it lives in. So yes, that's the interconnectedness. It's as, it's as strict a rule as that. You know, you spoke about how you got into forestry, then, you know, you basically got back into birds and that kind of thing, and eventually landing up at Fitzpatrick much later on. But how did that love for birds start right at the beginning? Wow. Okay. Now that is the beginning. <laughs> That's way back in the 1970s when I, oh, no, 68, late 60s when I was at uh, school at King Edwards in Johannesburg. We lived on the outskirts of Johannesburg, then very much a remote suburb called Bryanston, which today is almost in the middle of the metropolis. And um, my friends and I were all keen on birds and we had aviaries at the time. And when I say we had aviaries, they weren't well, you don't 
kids these days seldom have aviaries, but our aviaries were almost the size of a tennis court, each one of them. So we had birds in there with natural habitats and trees and water holes and um, behaving naturally, breeding and so on. And I would sit in there for hours, just enjoying my birds and their behavior. And I guess the rest is history. I had a chat to Bradwin earlier, Bradwin Orendorf, and he was speaking about, you know, that you've done some really cool trips. He told me about one of the trips. I think he went up to Uganda. And I think he was a shoe bull and that type of thing up there. What are these, some of these trips you've done as a bird and what are some of your, the favorite places you've got to, you've got to visit? Well, that's, yes. I mean, I'm no youngster anymore, so it's quite a long history, but <laughs> I've, I've birded in 39 different countries across the globe. I've seen nearly 2,000 species. Most of those in Africa, 1,300 of them in, in, in Africa. So to try and identify which was the most exciting or most fascinating is rather difficult after all that. However, I mean, one can always, one always remembers things like searching for the shubal in the Bangwelu swamps in uh, northeastern Zambia. It's almost a life-threatening situation to try and get those through those swamps uh, on a little boat at first that you paddle and then you try and wade through. Unbelievable. I, th I just thought I'd never even get to see one. So when you eventually do, it's just, you know, <laughs> the best thing in the world. Or maybe maybe more finicky little things like when I, I went to the University of Idaho in, in northwestern USA, just west of the Rocky Mountains, and I used to fly fish those streams there. And well, streams, they are huge rivers. And fly fishing with a dipper next to you on the rocks, diving and in, jumping into the water and catching its prey. Those sort of things you can you can never really forget. Um, and then also, I, I at one stage, I went up to a game bird conference in the UK and I was invited to go and help do some field work on the estates with the red grouse, the famous grouse, of course. And um, just seeing those birds in their natural habitat in Scotland, I'll never forget. Yeah, there are many memorable occasions with birds. All of them are, of course, fascinating. So you've done a lot of books and also studies on game birds, including the one we're going to talk about a little bit just now. But where did this love for this group of birds start? That was a career-changing experience, actually. Well, within career, but certainly a dynamic change. I was... A manager. In fact, I was warden of Cathedral Peak uh, State Forest at the time. And a guy that I got to know, Dr. Mike Mentis, who was with the Natal Parks Board then, and reg he registered with the University of um, KwaZulu-Natal in Pietermaritzburg. And he was studying the gray-winged and red-winged Franklins in the Drakensberg, uh, mostly to understand the grassland management for those two species. And I did a lot of field work with him to the point where I realized that it was becoming more interesting to me than the management exercises that we did. And I had to go to our senior management and say, well, I don't see myself retiring as a forestry manager. I would like to get into the research section. And that is why, in fact, I went to the University of Idaho because the best training for that at the time was in wildlife resource management in, in a US university. So that's where it all swung. And uh, the game birds, because of those work on the grassland Franklins, the game birds just stuck with me in my research endeavors. Well, in terms of your books, I was actually was telling this when I phoned you. I've actually got it in front of me. Unfortunately, my camera's not on, so you can't see it. But 
I've got your Game Birds of Southern Africa book you did with uh, was yourself, Tim Crow, and yes. Simon Barlow. And I remember I actually got it as a gift from someone from one of these SPCA mark SPCA markets. And I was actually talking to someone the one day, and you know, I actually realised it's one of the special editions, all autographed. And I think that it's one of those books that really is my favourite favourite books. I think since I saw this book, I've actually wanted to have a chat to you on the show. So yeah, this book has really got a pride of a pride of place in my collection. And yeah, just when you start looking at these birds and the natural habitat. You can see, you can see the attraction to these birds. Absolutely, and if I can just go on, because I'm sure you're going to ask the question further down the line. That was all paintings in that book by Simon Barlow, which are absolutely amazing. You know, he spent a couple of years doing those paintings, and he perfected the 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 detail and, as you say, the relationship with the habitat so well. Why would in the most recent book, Game Birds of Africa, we use photographs instead? Well, it's a simple economical issue. To get somebody to do that book again now in, in the 2020s would cost about a million rand. That's what yeah. those artists are getting for their work these days, and rightly so. But of course, a biologist at a university like I was when I started doing the Game Birds of Africa book doesn't have a budget of a million rand for the artwork. Yeah, but I think it's one of those books that people can get their hands on it. I know it's not available now. I think you just go on the internet. It's one of those books. It's, you know, the new one I really love. It's, it's, it's got a different mm. appeal. But this is one of my favorite books. It's one of those books that you sit down, pour a cup of coffee or whatever you drink. And it's just, it's just, it's just the, like you said, the paintings in this book are absolutely, absolutely stunning. I mean, these are the kinds of paintings that would be fantastic to have on your wall. They're beautiful. Oh, they are. They are. In fact, I'm lucky enough to have a couple. Not not the one those in the book, but Simon did a few practices before and, and a few in between and so on, and I've got a couple. Absolutely. I mean, I am uh, and was the author of that book and others since, but I can I have no shame in saying those paintings make the book. <laughs> mm. Definitely. So, so just on, on a side, I know we can, we're, not, we're not going to talk about your books right away, but just, you know, I'm always interested to know what does the process look behind look like behind when you when you do the preparation? Because obviously that book might have been very different to your to your newer book. And I've also got your Birding in South Africa's National Parks. And all the books must have a bit of a different process. But how does that that look for you when you put together one of these one of these books? Well, the Game Birds books are different because they've been my focus, uh, my career focus. So they are really a compilation of years and years, decades of research on those particular birds, as well as collating the whole scientific knowledge about those birds throughout the world. So that's a far more formal exercise, really. What, what those are, they, they're monographs. They are, they're a handbook. They're not a field guide. They're a handbook of the, the basic information known about those birds with reference lists at the back to show where you know all the studies that have contributed to the knowledge so that's a more formal process of trying to record in one handbook most of what you know about a group of birds um, whereas birding in south africa's national parks is a totally different concept um, in fact a friend of mine now who contributed photographs to the the latest book um, we're sitting, we were sitting around a fire up in the Lipopo province, having done some birding. And we sort of looked at each other and, and thought, well, why is there no book on birding in South Africa's national parks? The national parks are our jewels in the conservation crown. And yet there's no one little book on what birds you can see where in those national parks. So that came about by that sort of process, which is a very different one. 
Far from the crowd, in a wild and isolated corner of southern Namibia, you will find a uniquely private hideaway. Sunfontein Lodge and Nature Reserve is a magical destination where you can truly reconnect with nature. At 81,000 hectares, there is plenty of space to experience the true silence, solitude and beauty of Namibia's semi-desert terrain. They have just 5 eco-conscious bungalows accommodating a maximum of 10 guests. There are no timetables. You decide the what, where and when. Canoe, hike, fish, birdwatch or track on foot, the choice is yours. These are just some of the activities on offer. It's a soul-stirring place where guests will have all they need to relax and reconnect with nature. To find out more about Sunfontaine Lodge and Nature Reserve, either visit their website at www.sunfontaine.com or check them out in our birding directory. There will be a link in the notes of this show. Let's just go, let's rewind a bit again. Between 1988 and 1997, you coordinated the Game Bird Research Program at the Fitzpatrick Institute of African Ornithology. What did that program involve? Yes, that was, I, I graduated in 1992, sort of in the early part of that period with my PhD. So I, I then could, within the Fitzpatrick Institute, be, play a, 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 a meaningful role in supervision and program management. So we started the Game Bird Research Program at the Fitzpatrick Institute largely and thankfully with funding from an, an organization at the time that was called the African Game Bird Research Education and Development Trust. And they funded uh, and found funds for most of the work we did. It was an interface between landowners and bird shooters with the research on game birds so that there could be a better understanding of sustainable use and farmland habitat management. So what it was, was mostly supervision of students. In fact, solely, that's what the Fitzpatrick Institute is all about. It's a postgraduate institute at the University of Cape Town. So it was the, the supervision of students to investigate aspects of game bird biology, which was meaningful to applied science and conservation. You've had all these, um, all these things you've been involved in, the studies you've done, which have obviously culminated in some of the books that you've, 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 you've got to work on. I just want to say one thing which I find really great about your books is they all are very accessible. So anyone who's out there who's looking to get into your books, they're not written in some high up there scientific language. It's, it's written in a, a language that normal people can understand. Well, I would hope so, because in fact, you know, that's what one tries to instill in, in any biological studying student is to try and make the interface between scientific writing and popular or semi-popular writing so that it is available to everybody because let's face it we understand the animals better on this planet so that everybody can make better choices in our lifestyle and the way we go about things on the planet so we're going to start talking about your game birds of africa book which is one of your which is your latest book that you've you've just done but before we we talk about that like we've mentioned this is a, a book that speaks about a specific group of birds now a lot of birders when they go out there and they want to get a book they'll go and buy like a sassel or a roberts which covers all the the species that there are in the region you know what is there why is there value in buying these more specific books yes it does i mean there's no there's no doubt that uh, the field guides outsell any other bird books across the planet because birders uh, have the need to go and find what they have can find in whatever area they're visiting so it's only when when birders get to the next step of going well i have a favorite group 
or I care about the future of a favorite group, then one can start looking at, well, how do you get to know those better? And that's where a handbook or a monograph like the Game Birds ones can be particularly useful. Yeah, so just give us a little bit of an overview of the Game Birds of Africa book. Well, it, it, it is just that. You know, Game Birds, if I can just give a little bit of clarity on, on what we mean by Game Birds, are the group of birds that have been utilized by humans for centuries and, and are believed to withstand sustainable harvesting because they have been utilized and they've been domesticated for food production and in many cases also used for ornamental um, aviculture, all the pheasants and quails and so on. So they are a very familiar group to people. However, they're extremely overlooked. Many of the Franklin's spurfowls are considered difficult birds to identify, and they are skulking secretive, so birders don't really... They're a challenge for birders to identify as well. But at the same time, they are the closest to our daily life, really. If you think that they, the galley forms, which are all the guinea fowls, Franklin's quails, actually descended from the jungle fowl, Gallus gallus, which you found in, in Asia, which is a bantam-looking bird. And of course, the most common bird on this planet, the chicken, is one of them. The chicken mm -hmm. is a game bird. So they are a special group of birds. And in fact, the helmeted guinea fowl, known by most everybody, is, is also shown on the adornment of artifacts and textiles printing across Africa more than almost any other animal. So they're appreciated in some respect, but very much overlooked in the general conservation biology. The book covers 89 species. Um, you've explained what a game bird is, but what, are some, what groups does the book cover? Well, there are six main groups. So the guinea fowls are one, and we, we have also thrown in the Congo peafowl because it's a, it's a bit of a, on, on a limb. And, and then the Franklins and partridges make up a, a group. Um, we only really get partridges up in, in the north of Africa, above the Sahara. And then three species of quail as well, and 13 species of, of sand grouse. And then the, the snipes, seven, seven species of snipes, including the Eurasian woodcock, which also comes into North Africa. So I remember when the, when the Sassel was released in 2020, there's a lot of controversy specifically around this group of birds about the species that were included. And, you know, if I read in the beginning of your book, it says this year that you, you gave thanks to your son who helped compile the distribution maps, including those of the 15 recently elevated species. So can you chat us up to talk about the taxonomy that was used in the book? Because I know that a lot of people, this is one of those contentious issues, especially around, around this, this group of birds. Contentious, yes, but uh, perhaps I want to say, uh, perhaps just confusing to some people. I, and I, I'll put it straight out there up front. I'm not generally a taxonomist or systematist. The work done on this group of birds by by us was led by Tim Crow, retired from the Fitzpatrick Institute, and Rory Bowie, who was trained at the Fitzpatrick Institute, but now it's at the University of California, Berkeley. And the, what we did recently in the last decade was to investigate closely the Franklins and Spurfowls of Africa and the relationships between them. And what we realized in that, looking not only at the mitochondrial 
DNA work, but also at behavior, the anatomy, the general descriptions, and also their vocalizations, was that there was a lot more complex stuff going on. And when we uh, dug down deeper into that, we fairly recently then suggested that two of the spur fowls subspecies should be elevated to full species le level, which of course people go, oh, you, you, you're just splitters. I'll get back to that in a minute. And in fact, 13 of the Franklins across Africa, we suggested should be full species. Now, <laughs> some people that have been arguing against this when you said it was controversial, is that those are largely a, a bunch of birders and bird photographers from East Africa and the United Kingdom. And it's unfortunate because there's, no, there's nothing more important than to have a species announced as such, because the species is the currency of conservation as far as conservation biology goes. It's not that big a deal, but some people recognize that the differences aren't sufficient. Now, I, I tested this recently. I went up to Tanzania, northeast Tanzania, and I, I was get, wanting to get to know the Thika Franklin, which is a, was a subspecies of the Koki Franklin, and which we suggest should be a full species. And to be honest, when I heard the call, in fact, I didn't even hear the call first. My friend Per Holman up there heard it and said, there they are. I didn't even recognize the call. That's how different it was. Anyway, debates will go on forever in taxonomy and systematics. And thank goodness I don't have to participate at any meaningful level anymore. <laughs> but um, it, as I say, for conservation purposes, it's extremely important to get the status right of any organism on the planet. So the 15 elevated species in the that have been elevated in the book, those are accepted as species, as, as they, they're accepted now? Short answer, no, because they're accepted by some, but not by all. So it's one of those very contentious issues, which we, we could probably another podcast in itself. What, well, absolutely. But I would suggest that should be with Tim Crow and Rory Bowie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And But, you know, just one more point on that. For instance, the red-winged Franklin, which I mentioned earlier that we have in the Drakensberg and the, in the eastern highland grasslands of South Africa, the, the northern subspecies of that from... Um, Malawi, up across, even right across westward into Angola, we suggest should be an elevated species now, which would make our red-winged Franklin endemic to South Africa and Swaziland. Now, that brings responsibility with it, because therefore it doesn't occur anywhere else. We should look after those grasslands. And that's why these, these animals, birds, can act as keystone species for habitats, and it's right to have them designated at a, at a status where that is reflected in its highest priority. So going through the book, obviously we spoke about the fact earlier that there's no, there's no images, it's, it's, well, there's no paintings, it's only photographs that are used, and I can imagine this must have really presented many challenges because, I mean, some of these species aren't that common and you got to try and source photos for, for, for them, so I can imagine it must have been quite a challenge sourcing photos. Absolutely. It, but a, a fascinating challenge because I had not done it before at the scale of 89 species to get uh, male and female photographs where possible and in different habitats and with different subspecies depicted and so on. What I did was I just put the word out there to bird photographers across the planet and the response was 
absolutely amazing. The generosity and the the response was just um, mind-blowing. To the point where I've made friendships and gone birding with some of these photographers since then on numerous occasions. And a couple of them are regular birders with me now. Yes, you know, and also just the magnitude of the day, the, the, the space for collecting computer space. I got hundreds and hundreds of photographs and you now have to start working out, well, which one depicts best the species either as, as it's being a male or female or in its habitat and so on. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, being a staff member at the University of Cape Town at the time, there was no budget. And I had to make that clear right up front. And I don't think there was more than one or two people that said, look, I only let my photographs used with payment. There was there was one, the, the, the photograph on the first edition of this book, where he said that as long as it goes on the front cover of the book, he's one photograph of the Cameroon Spurfowl, which is extremely, as you say, isolated, uh, localized and very difficult to see, let alone get good photographs of. Well, luckily, when I got his photograph and saw it, I went, that can work. I can put that on the cover easy. But yes, it was challenging. And strangely enough, there are there are a lot more isolated and secretive and difficult birds to see and photograph than the one which in the first edition I was scrambling for a photograph and in fact never got one for was the ring-necked Franklin up in Rwanda and that part of the world. I would never have thought if you'd asked me before we started of the 89 species, which one do you think would be most difficult? So it's fascinating as well at the same time. So there's a lot more detail provided for each family and species in this book than in a normal field guide. So what are some details that are covered in the book? Well, you see, a field guide acts as a, as a tool for you to be able to identify the bird. So all you really need to know about a bird is its description, its geographic range, where you find them, and um, the call is also useful. And that's what you'll find in, in most field guides. Whereas a handbook like this will go further into the behavior of the bird, feeding habits, breeding habits, the conservation. So a little bit more about the bird than just what you need to identify it in the field. Well, not a little bit, more, quite a bit more, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I've got the book in front of me. You're looking at stuff like obviously for each species, there's a photo with a distribution map description, which is quite helpful. It speaks about the classification, habits, like you said. Uh, so there's a lot of breeding, status, and conservation. So it's a, really, it's a lot of information. So it's like you said earlier, it allows you to almost go a bit deeper than the normal field guide would and to understand these birds on a, on a deeper level. That's true, uh, but it, it, it is also compact in in that you mm. could write a book on the on the whole biology of any one of those single species in fact there have been books written on the partridge in the uk and so on and so on so one one has to also keep it succinct and, and somewhat compact when you're dealing with 89 species in a book um but hopefully the referencing section will mm. lead to to where people can read further about them as well so, Yorob, it's been fantastic to chat to you, but just one more question. Do you have any other projects coming up that you can share with us? Probably the short answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, the point is, I retired from the Fitzpatrick Institute um, last December. I can't believe it's a year already. Uh, retirement's not that difficult. It seems to have flown by the first year. Um, so, I'm not formally involved with any research anymore. However, I am still the vice chairman of the Mabula Ground Hornbill Project based at Bella Bella at Mabula Private Game Reserve just outside Bella Bella. 
So there's there's lovely work being done on those on that species, and we often put out new information about the conservation of those where we're trying to reintroduce ground hornbills into areas where they became locally extinct because of threats, which we're now understanding and we can get rid of. I'm also trustee on uh, a trustee on the Wild Bird Trust, and that operates in mostly Southern Africa at this stage, uh, including Angola. Uh, the Cape Parrot Project in the Hogsback is one of the central projects of their activities. And also the water the water source uh, project in the south or east east central Angola down into the Okavango Basin. And I'm hoping to get up, up there a, a little more frequently in the next couple of years. And then um, just for, in, for interest um, on, 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 on the getting hold of any of these books, including the Game Bird book. Uh, I'm a patron of the Wild Books online bookshop. And that that's worth using if you can't find any of these books and or any other birding books, as well as any other wildlife books that people are looking for, the online wild books. Yeah, doing a great job with Bradwin there. So yeah, yes, um, but, but Robert, it's been great to chat to you. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I hope a lot of people are going to get this book. It's a fantastic book, compact, a lot of information, and it's a great addition to any birders' library. Thank you. I, I never give, give up a chance to try and promote game birds. They're a fascinating group. We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books Online Store to help get all the best birding and nature books into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life Project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link either in the comment section of this podcast or our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Don't forget to follow The Birding Life on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out Bird Lassa and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a lifeless while playing your part in social conservation, as well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.